Hey, this is Ron Young with Little Caesar. You're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another episode of Focus on Metal. We've got a returning guest this week. That is Ron Young from uh, Little Caesar. At least that is probably the the place you would most likely know of him. uh, He's been the vocalist of the band for pretty much freaking forever. And um, qualify him as a returning guest because Ron was with us way back on episode 371 that was back in uh, 2018 when little caesar had put out their release eight and if you want to go back and listen to that marathon discussion with ron you can go up to focus on metalpod.com and either look up episode 371 or just type in ron young in the search bar should come up and you can download that stream that whatever you want to do but again, uh, yep, yeah, Ron was back with us in uh, 2018, returning again this week, but this time not for music, but for a book. And the book is called Judge This Book by Its Cover. So it's a book that Ron just put out uh, about his life and struggles and all that good stuff. And he partnered up with uh, Steve Olivas to do this, but it's pretty much Ron's words with Steve putting it into perspective for him. And, uh, you know, Ron is always an incredibly great interview. And he's also pretty much a straight shooter, says what he wants to say, doesn't pull any punches. So he's a great guy to talk to. We had a marathon discussion with him the first time. And again, this week, another, I don't know, maybe 70 minutes or so of great talk with Ron. You know, some of it is about, you know, the music business and other things that Richie likes to dig into, but primarily it is about the book, Judge This Book by Its Cover. Lots of good stuff this week with Ron, you know, not only how the music business screws you over, but even, hey, how you can screw yourself over as well. As I said, Ron is pretty damn candid. So with that, why don't I turn it over to uh, my buddy Richie and vocalist Ron Young. Hello. Is that Ron? Yes, it is. Hey, Ron, it's Richie here for the interview. Is everything all right? Hey, Richie. Yeah, everything's good. How you doing? I'm okay. So, so where are you living? Where, where's your ranch? It's about an hour and 10 minutes outside of Hollywood. It's out up towards Santa Barbara. Okay. Okay. You, your wife, and a lot of animals. Yeah, 23 animals. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's really ridiculous. Yeah, I was looking. Uh, I, I, I actually, I, like, I, I went out and I bought the book, so I actually have a physical copy. And in the end of the book, you list all the animals. I'm like, oh, wow, you got cats and dogs, and they all get on. Well, they don't, but they, they, <laughs> they find their own space. The dogs bark at the cats, and the cats kind of look at them from far away, just like, you know. Okay. F you. Okay. <laughs> so, pretty funny. Yeah. It costs a lot of money to feed them all. Of course it does. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I used to throw my money at worse things. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, so. so I got, I've, I've actually spoken to you once before, Ron, a couple of years ago. I think it was for the last little Caesar record. Yeah. I kind of remember that. Yeah. Um, because I'm I'm originally from Ireland. I don't think you ever played there. I know you played all over Europe. No, you know, 
I keep wanting to get over there, and it's always just logistically so difficult. And we never, on the like three, four times we went over to UK, we never got over there. And we have some great fans there, and I'd really love to see the country because uh, I just, you know, I love the culture and I love the accents and I love the people. And it's like, yeah, I wish I could get over there. Mm. Do you have a favorite uh, country in Europe that you always circle? Like, yeah, I can't wait to get back there. Yeah. Um, I love different countries for different things. I love Spain because the people are really, they just love music and they're really exuberant about music and the food is really good. Yeah. <laughs> so that's always fun. And, and it's, it's a little bit cheaper than some of the other European countries. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I like each one for their own reasons. And so it, it's just, to me, it's just so great to get out and get a totally different sense of culture and people and especially here in america especially lately with all the red versus blue sort of fighting Mm -hmm. people kind of lose sight of i don't know just just how sort of people are so common to each other in so many ways um and then you throw in a sort of native arrogance that comes with being american <laughs> it's like you know it's uh, it's always nice to get out and get a fresh perspective from different cultures of people you know yeah did you ever get to play in japan i got to do some shows in that manic eden project i did with adrian vandenberg and rudy sarzo and tommy aldridge yeah and we only did like acoustic shows we never really got to go full volume and it's a very interesting country. <laughs> yeah, I, I, lo- I love that record. But one of the things I'm always asking musicians that get to play in Japan, uh, what gifts did they give you, Ron? Can you remember? Oh, my God. I had so many I had to bring home with me. Just like hand-painted portraits and sake sets and chopsticks and just a million things. These little stuffed animals that they kind of made look like me and... It's really kind of, it's bizarre. And it starts from the second you get to the airport. There's folks waiting for you. And they give you gifts. They're so generous. And it's just, you know, it's just part of the culture. Mm. And so you just graciously graciously accept them. And, of course, trying to bring them all home, I had to get another suitcase. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, really kind and very kind, generous culture. But it's so much different than U.S. culture. There's like a culture shock you get when you go over there. Um, did Manic Eden ever get to play in a, in a full electric show or was it just no. acoustic? No, we just did acoustic shows in Japan and um, and throughout Europe, mostly in France okay. at, at, the, at the FNACs, you know. Mm. So, ne- like, next year is, I believe that album was, what, 94? I I think so. And I know they're about to do a reissue of it. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. I mean, because it it really didn't get a lot of promotion. And I think it's a really good record. I really enjoyed doing that project. And it was unfortunate that it could keep going. But, you know, the other guys in the band, they had had to feed themselves. They, they, They sort of had a little bit of a higher lifestyle than I did at that time. And it required more income than we were generating. So they had to go back. They had to go back to their other better-paying projects. You still in touch with any of them? We talk on Facebook all the time. Me and Adrian poke each other. He's such a fun guy, and he's so sweet, sweet and down to earth. 
I mean, he's a really good guy. So we're, we're always goofing around with each other and sending little notes back and forth and commenting on each other's posts. So Was, <laughs> the, was there any, any extra songs recorded for that album that never made no, it? No, no. Everything... I, I actually think there's like one or two songs that were done on a Japanese issue that, that might be, but I really can't recollect. That's sort of when I was in the peak of my, you know, sort of indulgence. Yeah. And there's a little bit of a foggy time. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I want to get I want to get into the book, judge this book by its cover. I want to ask you, where did you meet Steve Olivas, the, the author? Well, Steve, I met because he's got a, a fun podcast and I went on it and we just had so much fun and he asked really good questions. And he started to bring all these great stories out of me and he just kind of let me go and go. And then he asked me back to do it. And then at the end of the second one, which we also had a great time, um, he said that he was an author and he helps people sort of compile their life stories. And, you know, he's also a licensed psychologist. So he's actually really good at sort of pulling things out of people Mm. and, we just really hit it off and I was like, you know, so many people after interviews tell me when I sort of, you know, tell some of these stories, they were like, you know, you should really put this down in a book. And so he offered it to me because he's done this for several people and I, I took him up on the offer. So we just kind of sat on the phone and I just started at the beginning of my life and he would just ask me questions and then he kind of would just collate it and tra- collate it and transcribe it. Excuse me. My dogs are barking. <laughs> um, and lo and behold, he just sent me this manuscript and we just had to move a couple things around. And I was, I was really kind of shocked because if I had to sit down and write a book, I would just keep going on and on about something very minute and it would turn out to be 50,000 patients pages, you know, 95% of them should have been thrown out. So, yeah. Yeah. What was off limits? Was there anything off limits? There was, there was nothing off limits. There was a couple of, there was a few stories I pulled out of the book at the end of it. When I saw the manuscript, mostly because, and it was a very interesting process because uh, I'll just digress for a second and then get back to your question. Um, you know, you write a book like this and then you get it and you read it and you realize that you're running the risk of offending, pissing off or hurting a lot of people. And, you know, when you tell stories of breakups, it's it's always it's a one sided sort of take on it. And then there's always another side to every story, mm-hmm. or every sort of interaction. And at the end of it, I was really happy with it, but I got, I got that sort of, what are you doing? Just don't put this thing out. You don't need this crap in your life, you know? So, um, and it was interesting because, you know, working with Steve and stuff and I, you know, you tell stories about the breakup of your marriage and this and that. And at the end of the day, there was only a few stories that I wound up pulling out because I just thought they were either redundant or a little too, um, it, it would require somebody else's input to to their take on it. And I couldn't get it, so I just decided to stay away from it. But 95% of those stories are all in there. But I, I you know, you have to be careful about these things. And I'm so, so, so grateful that so many people that, that I grew up with and are sort of in the book, 
have all given me really positive response to it. They felt I was very fair. You know, it, it's like it's only if you tell a story and don't put judgment in it. It's like here's what this is what happened. You know, and you know, I hope it comes across in the book that I'm that I'm humble and that I'm self reflective, and I try to own my own parts and in, in some of the chaos. And then then you kind of lay it out there where people look at it and think, okay, he's this is probably a pretty straight up approach to it and pretty honest take on this. And, you know, but I tell stories about Gene Simmons and David Geffen, people tell story about those guys all day long. So (laughs) they're, they're used to it, you know? So, yeah, all in all, it was really, you know, people that that I'm still very close with who wound up calling me up and saying, you know, man, that was really good. And that was a really, you know, um, it was a cool way that you went about this approach or told that story and gotta say that was pretty you know pretty honest and then some people calling up going no 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 that happened in january and then we went and did this in may and i'm like whatever that doesn't matter (laughs) you know (laughs) i have one guy commenting on amazon that we misspelled the title of one of the chapters so if that's the worst input i get is spelling errors and uh slight timeline discrepancies i figure i i I did pretty well (laughs) yeah ron i want to ask about some of the stuff in the book did you maybe have think that a lawyer is going to look at it and maybe i don't know whether i should put it in it or not well the good thing is is my wife works in advertising and she always has to be very careful when she puts together ads for products and she works with some very large corporations and these large corporations are publicly owned and they have to be very careful of what they say because of especially in America, a very litigious society. And the reality is, is that I made sure that every story that I told was, was honest and it was accurate and it could be backed up. And I didn't defame anyone. I didn't call anybody a fucking asshole. I just yeah. said, here's how they behaved. And people would say, wow, what a fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you do it that way, you're pretty clear. You know, but who knows? I might get a I might get a letter from a lawyer someday. Did you have anybody come come back to you? Because you've already mentioned and you had that foggy period when you were on on heroin, and it's detailed a lot in the book. Did anyone say to you, "No, that's not the way it happened at all"? Or did you even approach him and say, "Look, I think this is how it happened. I want to get it accurate." Is this how it actually went down? Well, I didn't because I knew if I did that, then the book would never come out. Because there would be so many people I'd have to double check. And that's why I would really comb my memory and occasionally check in with people I know that were familiar with things. And they're like, no, that, that's how I remember it, too. And I'm like, okay, good. And like I said, a few people a few people would say that you know the timeline was off a little bit, but the essence of it came through. So, you know, that's why it's a memoir and not an autobiography. <laughs> so it's like, this is how I remember it. Yeah, no, nobody has yet. And there was a, I actually made a list of about 10 people that I was worried what their response would be because of some of the things that I made public. And like I said, every single one of them, you know, felt that it was, was honest and it was accurate and, um, 
you know, they they weren't offended or hurt or disagreed with it. So I'm really grateful for that. Was there a particular aspect of or part of your life that you wanted to get in the book that maybe a lot of people didn't know about? Well, I don't know. You know, you, over the years, I've done so many interviews and I've told so many stories. In fact, we did the book and the book was finished and I realized I didn't even tell the story about how I got into Terminator and what, what that day was like in that shooting. And, you know, and it's like, Oh my God. Okay. Here's how this went. <laughs> you know, we stuck it in and it, and it's strange so far. There hasn't been anything that I've regretted that I forgot to talk about. And it's funny because there's some people that want to know a little bit more details who know me and they call me up and they go, so wait a minute, you know, what, what was the deal with this? And what did he say? And when did he say it? You know, and it's like, yeah, no, this is how I went down. And I made sure I checked with a couple of, you know, so little things like that have turned out to be, you know, uh, like I said, well received. And I can't really think of anything particular that I should have put in that I didn't. Mm. Is it easy in general, Ron, to do interviews about a book like this? Because most over the years, you would have got been, you know, you, you do interviews, but you're talking about mostly the band, and the rest of it is mostly off limits unless you bring it up. But with the book like this, you can be asked anything. That must get uncomfortable at times, can it? Well, not really, because you know, if you get to a place when when you go through something like an addiction. And you work through it. And the process of working through it is to really look at your behavior, really look at the outcomes of your life, your actions, your decisions, your choices, all those things. And you make peace with all those things because you have to learn to accept who you are. And so for me, it's like I I don't have any secrets. I don't feel uncomfortable with anything I've done. Fortunately, Nothing throughout the difficulties of my life made me behave in a way that was really heinous. You know, I neglected my first marriage and I, I kind of destroyed that by basically cheating on my first wife with a drug. Mm-hmm. And that's what kind of ruined the relationship. So, I, you know, believe me, it took me a whole bunch of years to be able to look at it in that way, you know, rather than... You know, oh my God, my wife left me. You know, I was just a drug addict. She should have supported me. And no, I used her up. (laughs) You know, if you really love someone, you want them to take care of themselves and you want them to find happiness. And, you know, that's exactly what she did. And I was on the losing end of that. But once you get to a point where you can own your behavior and you're, you're comfortable with all of it, then nothing is nothing makes you uncomfortable really to talk about you know of course as you say in a lot of these interviews it's all about music but you know it never really delves into this oh was your mother cool or was she like a psychotic alcoholic drug addict and it's like that never comes up (laughs) so i figured i would tell people so they have a little bit more insight as well as these sort of weird bizarre brushes with you know, fame in a sense, getting on television a couple of times before I'm even 10 years old. It's not like I was trying to be on television. So it's just kind of bizarre that these things happen to me in New York City. And, 
I was kind of destined to do things where I'm more in the public spotlight than some other people. At least it seemed that way. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, just interesting kind of things that it gives people a little bit more insight. Mm. You know. Did you find, Ron, when you were doing interviews originally with the band, I'm talking now late 80s, early 90s, that nobody would actually bring up anything about your childhood, that it was all about the music, or was, was there one, maybe one person did or maybe two that stood out and you went, whoa. You're going there. Yeah, not that I recall because, you know, back then, all the interviewers and the record label and the magazines, they were all sort of working in consort to get it together. And quite honestly, we didn't, you know, in, in the, I mean, we, we literally had like 15 minutes of fame. It like exploded. We were everywhere. And then it just, got smothered you know and that's kind of outlined in the book on a business level and there was so much going on at the time where the record label was trying to portray us even more dangerous than we looked and we looked really dangerous you know Mm -hmm. and it was strange because all the time we would go out and people were believing that sort of public relations generated hype about the edge of the band. And the reality is, is yeah, we rode motorcycles and yeah, we had a totally, I don't give a fuck attitude about trying to look glamorous or even be larger than life. We wanted to be sort of really down to earth, but that put us in situations where we would go to like radio stations and we'd go to, you know, go to do TV shows and, you know, you heard all the doors slamming and people running and hiding from us because here comes this like tattooed axe murdering biker group of dudes, you know, mm-hmm. and we were really not like that. I mean, we were really down to earth. One of the guys had, had a kid and we were very polite. We were all raised right. And so it was really kind of strange to fight that um, and, and kind of wonder why these people were so intimidated by us, you know, but we really stood out compared to the poisons and the warrants and the wingers as being really edgy. And, you know, we, we wanted that to come through in the music, but there was also a side of us that was, was definitely more complex. So where, where did your curiosity to get to know the business side of music come from? Because you seem to be the guy in the band I know you were the front man of the band, but you were the guy asking the questions. Were none of the other band asking questions at all, or did they just say, here, Ron, you go up and sort this out first? Yeah, most of the guys, they just wanted to play. And for me, early on, I mean, even before I got successful, I had put myself through production school to learn how to mix and engineer so I could be in control of my music and, and be able to have a vocabulary with the people we worked with that were being hired to to produce and mix the band and you know being a sort of street smart kid from new york city and really trying to pay attention to what was happening in my own career it just wound up i was the guy that was at all the meetings you know and and was representing the interests of the band to the best of my ability so it's just something that i i enjoy doing and something that I thought that I had a, a, a sort of talent to do. And someone had to really, from inside the band, know what was going on. There was a lot of times I'd go back and tell them, and they didn't like what I was telling them. 
know, but you can't tell them the truth. So, could, could you see when you're going into the meetings, people will be looking, saying, "Oh fuck, here's Ron again." Like they, they didn't want to tell you stuff. Yes, most definitely. In fact, if you know, when you make your list of regrets, I there's part of me that wishes that I didn't become so accessible that I kept the mystique as the front man more so than the guy who, you know, was college educated and articulate and understood marketing and understood all of these things. Cause then you go in there and you've got to convince the people you work with on a business level that you have this sort of magic that's worth selling records. And when you sit down and start having a very, especially when your image is such that you're trying to create that you're this rough and tumble guy. And then you go in there with this vocabulary and you're very calculated and controlled and articulate. And then they don't like that. <laughs> it's, and it, and it winds up not suiting your best interests because they become a little too comfortable with the magic. You've lost that mystique element. And there was definitely some regret about doing that. Why do you think, Ron, and I've spoken to a lot of, I've asked a lot of musicians this question, that a, a lot of them, they didn't want to get to know the business side of it at all. It ended up burning a lot of them. Like they, I've, I've had so many musicians say to me, and you read, I've read it in books, you know, that the contract they signed was a lot, was a load of shit. It was weighted way, way too much towards the record company than them. And my take on this all the time has been, you should have looked into it. You know, you obviously did, but a lot of others didn't. And they'd say, oh, yeah, I heard lawyers and other people to do that. But it's still in your interest to do something about it, isn't it? Well, it is. But you know what the real cold, hard, boiled down reality is? Like, I'll give you a great example. I read an article in the L.A. Times. This was probably in the early 90s, where a music business lawyer took a year. A lot of these contracts are what they call boilerplate, you know, they were drawn up by lawyers that are looking out for the interests of the corporation versus the artists that so-called have this magic that they're trying to market, capitalize, and generate revenue from. So this guy took your basic sort of recording contract that most new artists would work under 90% of its terms, and he changed all the nomenclature from like record from actual records and recorded music to a product, a generic product. And he sent it out to 25 lawyers that he knows and says, what do you think of this contract? And every single one of them came back and said, if you sign this contract, you're out of your mind. This is one of the most, this is one of the most one-sided, you get no protections. There's no guarantees. You have no recourse. And they're taking way too much of the percentage of the profits. It's ridiculous. And that's the way the music business was. And, it, you know, you hear these stories from guys like, you know, old R&B guys and blue guys and all these rocker dudes that say, oh, yeah, they ripped me off. They ripped everybody off. Everyone. I, I remember sitting in a meeting at, at Polygram and who were trying to court us. And they were talking about, here's LA Guns who sold a couple of million records and they're in, they owe the label so much money from tour support for renting buses and all this other stuff. They were never going to see a dime. 
90% of these bands never saw the money coming from a record company, even when they sold millions of records, because for every $1 they sold, the record company would come up with a dollar ten of expenses that they had to cover and never gave the artists royalties. And where artists were making royalties were generally the merchandise, the live music sales, you know, or when it got to the point that they were so powerful and so successful, they could hire lawyers to go back and renegotiate their contract. And from the second record on, they started to see much better profits. So it's inherently built in that it's one-sided toward the record companies. And that's just the way the music business operates. And they'll just look you right in the eye and say, well, if you don't want this recording contract, then nobody's ever going to hear your music. And musicians are so hungry to get their music out. And at that time, you had to do it with major corporations. They were the ones that controlled the radio, they controlled the promotion, they controlled the record stores, they controlled MTV, in the sense that they had 10 artists in their fold. And this is what they would do. They would come out and say, okay, you, like in the beginning with Guns N' Roses, Geffen would say, if you want to get the new Aerosmith song before the other radio stations in your market, You've got to play this Guns N' Roses band that we're trying to break. And you can insert any name there. They would use their bigger acts to leverage their smaller acts promotion. So it was really, they're scoundrels. They're all scoundrels. And it's just built into the, into the machinery that that's the way it is. And so that's why so many artists at the end of the day wind up feeling that they were completely betrayed or taken advantage of in an unfair manner. But that's just the way the music business has been set up for decades and decades. And now that once the internet hit for a period there, artists had a lot more control, but now there's no more even record sales. You know, it's all Spotify and streaming. So mm. artists are getting no money from record labels. It's all about, well, maybe they can get our name really big. And then they can really what they do is monetize YouTube videos, you know? So that's, it's a completely upside down model now than it used to be. And it's, but you know, for the old school musicians, 99 out of a hundred of them wind up walking away feeling like they were taken advantage of. And they were, that's just the way it goes. Ron, when did, I don't know if I'm using the right word here, the, the innocence leave you? When you got when you joined the band, the, the whole point in joining the band was, I just want to make the best music we can, and the music w- was the be all and end all. Can you think of one point where, when you got into the business side of it, that it flipped? Well, you know, it's it's when things start going bad. When things are going well, everybody's looking ahead and they're looking at the big bright blue sky. And then when things start going bad and and fingers start getting pointed and accusations and blame is starting to try to be spread around and you see rats jumping off the ship that they say that they were so proud of and they were so excited about. And it completely, you know, because guys, I mean, when you have John Kaladner, who's a legend of, of A&R, which stands for Artists and Repertoire, you know, these are the guys that sign the bands and wind up continuing to work with them and the producers and keep the music rolling out. And then you have the, you know, the presidents of the label and the big time owners like Clive Davis and David Geffen and all these giant music moguls. And then you got a guy like Jimmy Ivey, who's literally worth 
billions of dollars now, who's now on television, who is a huge producer and behind-the-scenes guy. So you have one of those, John Kalani's the manager, and Jimmy Iovine's the, I mean, John Kalani's the A&R guy, you got Jimmy Iovine's the manager, they're communicating directly with guys like David Geffen, and then you get a guy like Bob Rock, who's produced The Cult, and worked with Aerosmith as an engineer, and produced Molly Crew. So you've got the biggest, brightest names and everybody thinks, oh, my God, with all of these people involved, this is going to sell billions of records. This is going to be enormous. But the reality is, is that every single one of those guys has a reputation to protect. And they don't want any trouble associated with anything that they might work on not selling a million records. And if it doesn't, they want to stuff it in a closet and they want you to only focus on all the things that they've done that they hit the ball out of the park. And there's a lot there's a lot of failures in every one of these guys' closets where they thought something was gonna work and it didn't. But the real problem is is that when all these guys get in a room and they gotta figure out what we do next to try to right the ship. And they all start yelling at each other and pointing the finger. They all walk away really pissed off and they want nothing to do with any of them. And they want nothing oops, they want nothing to do with the project. And that's what happened to us. So I saw that coming really early on. You could see the little commentaries in meetings. Oh well, yeah, I know I know so and so thinks that they're the biggest and brightest in the music business, but really I am. And I disagree with that guy. But I'll I'll call him and we'll work this out. They don't work it out. They they quietly do passive aggressive little things and at the end of the day it's the artist that loses. And that's what happened to us. Hmm. So the saying, if the band would have been fine if you just let the band be the band, definitely applies to you guys. Totally. From a, from a sound level, a production level, from a business level, from all aspects. The strange thing is, it's like, because of all the people that were behind the scenes working with the band before the record even came out, everyone had this really high expectation. So when we released our first single, which was Chain Fools, the cover tune, it, it did really well. It did better than the Black Crows. We sold a lot more records than the Black Crows in the first bunch of weeks. It still wasn't big enough for them. They still looked at it like it was disappointing. And once you start having that stench of disappointment, even though it's really successful, but it's not the meteoric explosion that they expected, they all start kind of acting weird. And then they all start pointing fingers. So it's... If we would have been left alone, for sure, the expectations would have been much lower and we could have just grown naturally as a band. But that wasn't the expectation. So the, 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 so the music business at that time, it, it wasn't into growing a band over a couple of albums then, like it was in the 70s? Well, that's when it started to shift. Um, this is when the formula was, you know, you look like a bunch of girls and you had a really overproduced record, and you put out this rock track, the token rock track that everybody at those, all the, this is when all the radio stations started to become syndicated, and one company would own 20 stations in 20 markets, started to become very corporate, started to be run by lawyers more than, than anything else. And all of a sudden, you know, once you do the rock track, then you release the ballot. You know, it's rock chalk ballad, rock chalk ballad, rock chalk ballad. And it, it was really the beginning. And then it, it
it's interesting because at that time we were saying, you know, so we wanted to be a band that changed sonically what was happening. We didn't want to do, we wanted to do a very 70 sounding record, very personal, very, you know, not smoothing out all the edges that all these slick producers were doing with Molly Crew and Winger and Warren. And that's the kind of record we wanted to make. And lo and behold, shortly thereafter, these bands from Seattle start coming out, and that's exactly what they're doing. They're making different kinds of music, but their approach is way more down to earth, way more honest, way more stripped down, and way more nostalgic. You know, the early Soundgarden stuff was like Black Sabbath, you know? And that's what we wanted to pioneer. We wanted to bring that back, but we got we had huge battles about that with John Kalodner, and then once we were up there doing the record and Motley Crue went to number one with Dr. Feelgood, all of a sudden Bob Rock wanted to make us sound really slick and big like he did with Motley Crue because now he's got a brand to protect. So it was really bad timing on that aspect and we're up in Vancouver and all these guys are, there's other battles being fought behind our backs between these giants and the next thing you know, we're up here going, hey guys, you know, we're this is going off the rails here. You better come up and listen. Like, yeah, we don't have time for that shit. We have <laughs> not, no time for fights, you know, and we have no time to listen and check that your record is doing exactly what you want it to do, which was honest and stripped down and more like a, you know, bad company, Leonard Skinner, ACDC production and starting to turn into, you know, something with lots of overdubs and keyboards and background singers and reverbs and all this stuff. And, Unfortunately, we had a big fight during Mixtown, and we mostly lost. We kind of compromised, and everybody kind of walked away feeling like, well, it's not what we wanted it to be. And there was two differing camps about that. And so, unfortunately, when you do something like that with a piece of art, it's going to be compromised. And that's really the way we all wind up feeling about it. Mm. Ron, when you were up in Little Mountain, and I, I did a massive project on Little Mountain, and I had all different musicians on, and the guys that worked there, including Bob Rock, uh, we interviewed. Um, can you remember what other band was there when you were doing the album? Was there another band in the other studio? There actually wasn't. It was right after... It, it, um, the last band that Bob had worked with was Motley Crue, and I think he was getting ready to work with the cult, and he was working on the side with Brian Adams. Brian Adams was always down at the studio because Brian was trying to do a record with famous Mutt Lang, who takes forever to yeah. do a record. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Brian asked Bob to start doing stuff at his studio at his house on the weekends. So a lot of this stuff, when Bob was off with us, he was running over to work with Brian. And so, no, there was nobody big at the time. We kind of just went up there and, you know, the ghost of Motley Crue, Aerosmith, The Cult, all of these huge bands that had worked at Little Mountain and made it, you know, a legendary studio, not to mention being in Vancouver where there's like the world's greatest collection of strip clubs and <laughs> rock clubs. And we're up there with anal Bob rock with nothing to do. And all we had to do was the rest, you know, one guy would be in there working on overdubs after we got the tracks. And then the rest of us were, well, let's go get lunch at the number five. And then we'll go over to the orange and see, you know, Betty boot do her thing. And then we'll go over here. And so really not a good place to drop a bunch of guys on their motorcycles from LA. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I'm, I'm sure Ron, this has to have crossed your mind over the years. 
you go up to Vancouver, right? And you do the album with Bob Rock. And then soon after, ACDC go up with Bruce Fairburn and Mike Frazier, who also work at Little Mountain. They do the Razor's Edge, and that went five or six times platinum. Right. I'm sure you've thought about that over the years. Yeah, but you know what? ACDC knows. Like, they asked... Some big interviewer asked... um, I think it was Angus. So he's like, you know, you keep making the same kind of record over and over and over again. He's like, yeah, because it's great and it works and we know how to do that. Why do we need to change? People want to hear an ACDC record, we're going to give it to them. And so, you know, that was the thing. We we did a, a, like a year-long search for the right producer. And we were bringing up names like Ed Stasium and Tom Dowd and, uh, Joe Hardy, all these guys that did like ZZ Top and engineered Zeppelin records and did, you know, Leonard Skinner and, you know, and the label, John Kaladner is throwing around names like Bob Rock and, you know, Mike Klink and, you know, Tom Worman and all these 80s guys. And we're going, no, we want a 70s guy. We want somebody that really understands how to just put a mic in front of an amp and get a good performance out of us and make us sound like we're in anywhere from a great, you know, like a club to a small theater so that there's a personal connection to the music and leave, leave the little nuances, leave the little things that might be slightly out of tune that you hear on ACDC records or, or Rolling Stones records, because that is the personality of the band. And unfortunately, Bob took all of that away from us. It's going to get very loud here in a second because my dogs are going to start howling at each other. That's okay. They're, they're now fighting. Hold on. <laughs> Put it on mute for a second. Focus. God almighty. It's like they go between interviews and trying to have sex. Not going to happen in this house. <laughs> Ridiculous. Anyways. So the other, the other thing I want to ask, Ron, is... So they, they, so Geffen signed you guys as the band, right? So why did they try and change it? They know what they're getting. I, I don't know. You know, there's something that stuck with me that, that always sticks out in my memory where I had a big argument with John Kalab and he, we would butt heads a lot. And I asked him point blank. I'm like, I said, John, I have a theory. I call it the Benjamin Franklin theory. He goes, what's that? I was like, well, Benjamin Franklin didn't invent electricity. He just discovered it. He didn't walk around thinking that without him, electricity wouldn't exist. And let's go trying to change electricity. Electricity is electricity. It runs on certain laws. And a smart guy knows this or he's going to get shocked. So quit acting like you invented us and just start acting like you just discovered us and let us do what it is that you were so enthralled to give us this big record contract to do because now you're trying to change it. You're trying to make us what we weren't when you were excited about us. So why are you sticking your nose and messing this whole thing up? Let us use the same sensibilities that made me think that this group of guys writing this group of songs, worshiping this kind of music, that's what attracted you to the damn band. And now you're changing all of it. 
I don't understand it. And he had no good answer for me. I've often wondered what he did, because I have a lot of albums from the 80s, and his name is on them. And I'm thinking, you heard a producer, you heard a mixer, you heard the engineer, and the producer's normally involved with the band and what songs they're picking and whatnot. And then this guy, John Kolodner, comes in, and he's supposed to be this, this guru. And I've often asked people, like, wh- what exactly did he do that the others couldn't do? Well, this is, this is the inside reality with John Kolodner. ACDC wouldn't let him in the room. Aerosmith wouldn't let him in the room. <laughs> so John was somebody that the band knew that if once you got to a point of being so powerful as like an ACDC and an Aerosmith, because Aerosmith, the reality is, is Desmond Child and Diane Warren writing all their hit songs. So their songs are coming from an outside source. And then, you know, Bruce Fairburn, took him in there and made him really slick and really polished. And the record was successful. And then they wound up having a formula that they didn't want to mess up. And at that point, you don't, you can't tell Steven Tyler how to sing a song slightly better. He knows mm-hmm. how to do that. Mm-hmm. They know what they're doing. And then guys like Bruce Fairburn and Mike Frazier up at little mountain, they had a formula. And they knew what it was, and they didn't need the guidance of a guy like John Kalotner. But John put his name on every record because he was the executive behind it. And he was the guy that would go back to the bigger executives or people in radio and other departments, tell them what, tell, let him know what they let him know when he would pop up to Little Mountain every once in a while, and they would actually let him in the studio. So, you know, John became this legend, and I I knew we were in trouble when I went to John's office one day. I said, John, we have our two T-shirt designs for our tour. And he's like, oh, two, that's really cute. Come to my closet. And John had four of his own rock T-shirts with his picture on them, with his name. So the guy even had more merchandise than the damn band. So Whoa. that's what happens with legends. They they know they're legends. But you know, this is the thing. If we would have had the ability, if things would have stayed on track a little bit longer before it all imploded with the timing of the sale of the corporate, you know, the corporate nonsense mm-hmm. and the warehouse nonsense and the infighting nonsense, and we wound up getting on the charts. We would have then had the power and the leverage and the market credibility for us to start to assert our own opinions without us getting shot down as just being the damn band that's never done anything yet. Because they hold that over your head. And once you get that leverage, you can tell these people to shut the fuck up. And we never got that ability. So all the time it was... Well, you can't tell John Kalodner something. John Kalodner's John Kalodner. You can't tell Jimmy Ivey something. He's Jimmy Ivey. Meanwhile, Jimmy Jimmy got it. Jimmy just, you know, got caught up in the fight between him and David Geffen over some different business. Mm. And we got caught we got caught in the middle of that battle too. Mm. So, you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, after you get through your heroin addiction and after you get through licking your wounds and the self pity phase of your life. You look back and you go, well, it just wasn't meant to be on that kind of level. But the reality is, is, you know, still got the guys that I love to make music with and we still have the loyal hardcore fans. We can't make a living doing it, but to be totally blunt, 
knowing what I now know about myself, if I wound up like living in strip bars and doing heroin recreationally, I, I would have been a mess. I would have been dead or a complete asshole. Yeah. <laughs> I'd yeah. rather not be any of those things. Yeah. <laughs> Ron, I want to ask you about a couple of people. Some of them are named in the book and some of them are, they're associated with people that you named in the book, but you didn't really talk much about them. Um, First guy I want to ask you about is Randy Staub, who who engineered the record. Can you tell me how you got on with him doing it? Randy was great, because Randy was the guy, when we started doing vocals, and I went into that first time, you know, now I'm all nervous hearing all these stories. I go in there, and there's the mic set up to start doing some vocals, because we had just gotten all the basics done and everything. And uh, here Randy and Bob are telling me, they even showed me, the lyric sheets for Motley Crue where they're taking syllables at a time and they're literally dropping them all onto a 64-track digital machine uh, of which Brian Adams owned and was leasing back to Little Mountain. And they were putting, they were comping his vocals together to get what Bob felt was a really good vocal. So I knew Bob was a real taskmaster and I was nervous about singing with him and seeing how hard he was going to beat me up behind the mic. And I went through, the first song I sang was Chain of Fools. Did a pass. Didn't hear anything. I'm standing there waiting for some input. They're like, okay, let's do another one. So do another pass all the way through the song. Waiting to hear some more input. One more. You got one more in you? I'm like, yeah, sure. So they run the tape. I sing it again. I hear nothing. And I'm like, guys, I'm coming in. I got to find out what the hell's going on because I'm nervous at this point. And I walk in and it's just Randy. I said, where's Bob? Because he just left. Oh my god! Shit! He he hates it so much. He left. He said, "No, no, no." He thinks he thinks it's great. He just said, "Do whatever you want to do. You and me work together. Work through the night. When you're done, he'll come in tomorrow. He'll listen to it. He'll tell me what verses he wants to keep or what lines he wants to keep, and we'll put a comp together." He's going off to work with Brian Adams. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I did a lot of stuff with Randy. He's a super nice guy super talented guy I mean they had such a talented crew up at Little Mountain um, all those guys I mean they just it's one of those things that they just a great studio with a really talented crew of people who are so technically you know proficient and really good at getting performances out of people and working with the technology at hand to make records sound really good and they had a little factory up there because, you know, Bruce, would, you know, before Bob became his own producer, he was engineering Aerosmith Records with Bruce at the helm. Mm-hmm. So really, really talented group of people who are super nice. I mean, you know, one thing I love about Vancouver is the people and just quite honestly, the whole Canadian sort of personality is, is just so nice. And in a working environment, it's, it's very comfortable. Mm. The second guy I want to talk to you about, and I don't know how many sessions you did with this guy, but you have pictures in the book from Ross Halfin. And (laughs) you know, I've heard stories about him, and I've interviewed a couple of the Kerrang writers who went on on trips with him. And Ross can be—he's he's one of a kind. He can be a bit obnoxious. Yes, very, very obnoxious. Yeah, so do you have any memories of doing any photo shoots with him where you just rolled your eyes and went, oh, jeez. Yeah, no, we did several, and it was like, we were like, oh, my God, this guy's got a big, bigger ego than the bands that he actually <laughs> shoots, you know? And, you know, the thing is, is 
he'd be like, we would show up and, you know, he's like, okay, well, you guys go put your, put your, you know, your stage clothes on. We're like, these are stage clothes. And he was like, seriously? We're like, yeah, we don't have an offstage and an onstage wardrobe. We're not one of those kind of bands. So he's like, well, hair, makeup? I'm like, no. <laughs> we don't do hair. <laughs> well, how about a little bit of makeup because you're a little sweaty? Okay, put a little powder on her face, but that's all you get. And he'd huff and puff about that. And we're like, I don't know what to tell you, man. This is <laughs> So he would just position us and do his thing, but we, you know, we were a pretty intimidating lot of, of guys. So <laughs> when we would just kind of go, nope, this is the way it is. Nope. You know, he'd begrudgingly shoot us, but I, I it was one shot we did. And there's a photo with, with a green background. I remember that day. And Lauren went and he got it. We were eating chocolates and he took a piece of the brown paper wrapper from a box of chocolates and he blacked out one of his teeth. And he's in the photos and they wound up in magazines. And Ross is like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> well, I want to make it look like I lost a tooth. And he just was like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's like, you know, this is the band that doesn't want to look pretty and glamorous. And I think he kind of appreciated that. There was a certain honesty to it. And we would do it. We, we would go into any position you wanted. But he was a cranky son of a bitch. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> But a, but a great photographer. Oh, yeah, tremendous. Know? Still is. He's a fabulous photographer. Yeah, and there was some great Robert John and Marty Temme and, and uh, Niels Lozauer. We did so many photo shoots with all those guys, and they were so successful. And really, they were the guys capturing the imagery of the bands in the 80s and all those magazines. Mm. I want to ask you about Paul Stanley Bruce Kulik, and I believe you did the Haunt the Shade tour, wasn't it? Correct. So Eric Carr, and you talk a lot about Gene, but you don't talk about really much about those three guys. Did you have a lot of interaction with those? Well, we did. Eric used to travel on our bus, and because he wanted to get away from those guys, because <laughs> 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 Eric was really, really down to earth. And then when Eric got sick, there was there was a lot of tension with Eric's family and Gene and Paul because the family didn't feel like they were especially after he passed and there was some contention during those days. And cause Paul and Gene are very business oriented and they don't have a lot of patience when somebody might fall ill. And there was some tension in that. I'll just leave that at that. But, mm -hmm. um, Bruce, total sweetheart, you know, him and his brother, super nice guys. And, you know, but the thing is, is that Gene and Paul treat Gene and Paul tell guys like, I mean, at this point we're, I think Eric was in the, in the band for like 10 years already. And Gene and Paul in public will tell people you're hired in this band. You're not, you know, you're not Ace Freely. You are not Peter Chris. You are here by our grace. And they made that very publicly known. And it was kind of cold and kind of shitty, but it was Gene and Paul's show and they would dress you up and you would do what they told you to do because you know, Gene is, I mean, he's, he, he's very braggadocious about his talents and his business acumen. And he's got the success to prove it, you know, there's no doubt about that. Um, but super nice guys. And Paul, very, very standoffish, very aloof, 
you know, he, he didn't like to interact with his crew. He didn't like to interact with, you know, they kind of hid in their dressing room and did their thing. And Gene was way more interactive with us, way more. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's funny because I would see sides of Gene that were warm and funny and really down to earth. But most of the time he knows he's Gene Simmons and he's got a persona and a personality and a reputation to keep. Uh, at the best, I think, of what other people think of him, which he could care less about. So, you know, he just, he's Gene Simmons 90% of the time, and occasionally you would see a little bit more of, of the core. Mm. Um, what about the Slaughter guys? Um, they were very much caught up into their rise to fame at the time. And the interesting thing is Dana Strom fancied himself like Gene's protege. And so he was trying to trying to act like Gene in a lot of ways. And the thing is, is that he didn't have the 20 years of multi-platinum record sales under his belt yet to really kind of behave that way. But he did. And Mark was kind of kept to himself. And, um, oh my God, the guitar player. Tim I'm going Tim. Tim used to travel on our bus with Eric. <laughs> so, you know, because we were just down-to-earth guys. And, we would watch things like Spinal Tap that Gene had banned. You're not allowed to even mention Spinal Tap. He doesn't want to see it on the video player. He doesn't want to hear you laughing about it or talking about it or referencing it. Very offended by Spinal Tap because it made fun of what he made a living doing. <laughs> so, very strange, but whatever. <laughs> Did Gene talk to you at all about the decline of his record label? Because... The Simmons Records label, it was a big fanfare when it came out, I think in, I think it was 87. And I think by 1990, it was more or less done. Um, did he mention that to you at all? Did you talk no, about Gene, it? No, Gene only propagates his, his image of power, his image of success at all times. There is no, he does not show where the armor had been opened up or dinged. <laughs> That's not Gene. Gene will always only talk about himself and his success and would, would never talk about. And the interesting thing is, is like he gave a shit for having goatees. He would come backstage and go shave that shit off your face. What is this? 1973? Come on, man. You got to wear nice clothes and look pretty and attractive. That's how you're going to make it. You, you think you're this young working class band and that's nowhere. So shave that shit off. It's really just, and then oddly enough, right about then is when the whole grunge thing started taking off and Chris Cornell had a goatee and a bunch of the guys from Seattle had goatees. Gene grew a goatee. He did for the revenge and record. I, yeah. Yes. And I bumped into it. <laughs> and I'm like, Hey, shave that thing off. What is it? 1973. And he just like smiled at me like, well, sometimes if you can't beat them, join them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, the one, I want to ask you about Errol Slick, and I'm coming at this from an, a, a different angle. I did a, a project on Kerrang, and I spoke to 10 writers for Kerrang, and I asked the 10 of them who was the most boring interview that they'd ever done. Oh, and my God. Two of them named Errol Slick. Uh, yeah. One, one guy said that he was leaving an interview... And he just got the tape and he threw it in the gutter. He said there was nothing there. And yeah. was, was it just that Earl hated interviews? Or Earl hates interviews. Earl, and I don't know where, what his 
what his personal demeanor has evolved into. But he he's kind of a bitter guy that was angry. You know, he kind he of his his dirty white boy records didn't sell. When he joined Little Caesar, he kind of did it begrudgingly. And at the time, this is when, you know, everything had imploded for us and we were trying to resurrect the band and we had Herbie Herbert managing us. So he knew Herbie, he knew Herbie's reputation. So Earl had a little bit of hope that by joining the band and making a record with us that he would resurrect his career to be out. And no, didn't happen. So as that was going down, he was he was right there on the flame throwing pity party being really fucking angry at the corporate assholes. And, and yeah, he's, he's got a very flat demeanor. He doesn't, I don't know. He doesn't come across. He's an incredibly talented guy, but he's got none of that in him to exude that and want to pull people in to, you know, talk about his music and it, it's it's really kind of flatline and we left him out of a lot of interviews too he would just sit in the background didn't want to say a damn word but there's <laughs> there's an old flick played with david bowie and john lennon yep that's him in the back <laughs> so so the, i'm going to finish up on this ron you can ask these. You can ask Bob Rock, John Kalodner, and Jimmy Iovine one question, knowing you're going to get an, a completely hundred percent honest answer from them. Would you all? Would you ask the three of them the same question, or would it be three different questions you'd ask them? Oh boy! Um, you know, the the weird thing is, is that every single one of those guys I have complete understanding from their perspective as to what they did when they did it and why they did it and it's certainly what I didn't have my best interests in mind um, I don't know I would just basically ask if they gave a fuck that somebody's life and career was hanging in the balance when they selfishly only looked out for themselves which again I, I respect and I understand but mm. You know, the, the big takeaway for me that took me so long to heal from was just how easily people completely disregard the fact that there's a bunch of guys who, you know, their lives are hanging in the balance to try to do what it is that they love to do. And there should be at least some empathy for that, if not regard for their opinion. So... You know, these are guys that, that all wound up being just kind of cold. Not, not so much Jimmy. Well, Jimmy, Jimmy from day one. In fact, when I signed the contract with Jimmy, which I negotiated on the phone with him from my day job before we even got a record deal, he had a reputation of throwing out 80% of a band and bringing different guys in. And the, the first thing I said to him was, you're not going to do that. We're either going to sink or swim under this group of guys. This is the group of guys I got Jimmy Iovine to want to work with us. So show that some reverence. So he's like, okay, I won't do that. <laughs> you know, but you know, Jimmy's whole thing is he, he flies in and he flies out. Bono once hired a huge bodyguard to stand at the door, not let him leave the studio. Cause Jimmy, the big joke about Jimmy Iovine was that he, he produced from his phone. <laughs> you know, literally they, he had people hold, the mix is up to, to the phone and he would go, okay, yeah, yeah, that's feeling good. <laughs> so, 
You know, Jimmy is, he's a shrewd businessman and he's got great musical sensibilities, but he's got his hands at so many projects that when we went south, he's like, okay, whatever. I got 10 more. Mm. He's Jimmy Ivey. What does he care if one of his, one of his little things that he thought would do good? Ah, yeah, yeah. Guys fought and it all fell apart. No, well, you know, and we're like waving over here. You know, we're now dead broke and we can't make music at another label and none of you guys give a shit. And they're like, yeah, good luck. Good luck. <laughs> you know, so. Mm. so Ron, Ron, was your wife, was she your publicist back then around the time of your first or second record? Yes. My second wife, my current wife yeah. was our publicist. Yes. That's where I met her. So the question yeah. I, the question I have there is, <clears throat> What was she being told to look for to push you? Well, she was just doing her job. Yeah. Again, you know, when you're phoning, when you're calling in to like women like Bryn Breidenthal, who's the head of publicity at Geffen, and we had later found out that Bryn was, was we couldn't understand where all these rumors that we beat women and shot heroin mm. and shot people with guns and stabbed people. I mean, it was crazy, the stuff we were hearing, the rumors about the band, and we're like, I see you can look at the photo and think guys like that might be like that, but who's actually talking about this bullshit? And we found out it was Bryn Bridenthal. She was trying to build us up to be like the nastiest, you know, most deadly rock band in the world. And she was planting all these bullshit rumors about us, thinking that that was a good thing. And when I started working with Renee and Renee's like, yeah, you know, this is, this is where this stuff is kind of coming from. It's coming from the label. I'm like, wow, okay, well, we got to fix that because that's kind of bullshit. And it was strange because that's, she was really, I talked to her on the phone from the KISS tour, like every day, sometimes twice a day. Remember, this is before cell phones, this is before the internet. Mm -hmm. So you're in a hotel room on a landline talking to somebody on a landline back in LA who's making phone calls to set up interviews and make sure that we're in the newspaper review from the KISS show and so on and so forth. And at first, she was really intimidated, and then all of a sudden, she starts to realize that we're nothing that she was told from the label. And we started, you know, and then when I got back to LA and we started to work really, you know, one on one and personally, that's when, a, you know, we had a really deep friendship. And she was, you know, seeing, uh, you know, guys at the time, and we just stayed friends. And then, you know, she, she sort of had sorted. She married. She was. She married Bo Hill, famous producer. Oh yeah, I've interviewed Bo. Yeah. So so Bo, you know, <laughs> Renee went and told Bo that she wanted a divorce and came back to working with me. You know, working with me, living with me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that didn't go over too well. But you know, whatever. He's moved on. He's happy now. But you know, so it, it was an interesting sort of evolution. You know, at the time I was married and my wife was not, she was back home angry that I was gone for yet another month. And then when I get home, everything had imploded by then. And right then is when I started to get hot. That's when it really started going down you know, with that marriage. And, you know, Renee was always there at the end of the phone call, at the end of the phone going, oh man, dude, I'm so sorry that that's happened to you. And, you know, you hang in there and, hey, let's let's grab lunch for your birthday. And we did that like every year. And she was married and I was single and I'm going from one train wreck relationship to another and telling her all about it on the phone. <laughs> so, yeah, and then it just wound up being that we, you know, she just came to me and said, 
you know, I got to be honest, I've, I've been in love with you since we started working together. I know what kind of person you are. And I watched from far as you went through all your shit and now you're single. And quite honestly, I'm not very fulfilled in my marriage and I'm going to get a divorce. Would you like to try to have a relationship? And I was like, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm sober now. I can't have an affair with a married woman. And she went home that night and said she wanted a divorce. She wasn't messing around. Mm. So... You know, and we've been together ever since. Nice. So, yeah. Did um, did she ever tell you anything about the PR business? That you've gone well, through. You've bear in mind, Aaron, You've gone through. You've gone through it all now. The ups and downs, right? Did she ever tell you anything later on about the PR business that happened that, or that she was she experienced or she was told about that even shocked you? Well, she was the one that told me that that. When when we were out there with Kiss and everything, you know, literally within two or three weeks, the record label got sold. Our records were stuck in warehouses. Jimmy Iovine and David Geffen were having a fight. The manager of the label got fired for some major indiscretions. Yeah, <laughs> and we're like, <laughs> oh my God, what, what are we doing now? We got to get home and fix this. And everybody's like, don't come home. We'll, we'll sort it out, you know? And it never got sorted out. And so by the time we got back, at this time, the Maiden the Shade Tour was the Hot and Shade Tour was not doing well. As soon as Winger dropped off the tour, ticket sales went to the tank. And Gene and Paul were not happy about that, and they were trying to get Winger back on. So what that meant was they had to call Jimmy Ivan because we got on that tour as a favor to Gene from Jimmy. And the label was happy about it. And so Gene was like, I gotta get this band off the tour. So my wife told me that Gene had called up Jimmy Ivy, and this is when he said, you know, we were going over like pork chops at a bar mitzvah, which I thought was an hysterically funny line. It wasn't true at all, but, you know, so that kind of stuff. And, you know, the interesting thing is, like I said, me and Renee were friends, and at this time we started to get sort of heavily aligned with a lot of motorcycle clubs because of the, the reputation of the band, the look of the band. And mm -hmm. poor Renee had her own company in Hollywood and the Hells Angels were going to her office to use her phone to do club business. Because <laughs> I introduced her to them and they were like, hey, we can go to that little, that little girl's office and, you know, we can do business there. And they kind of took over. They would do it for like a week at a time. Wow. <laughs> she was kind of shocked and horrified. And I'm like, sorry, sweetie. You know, <laughs> that's what happens when you become friends with, you know, organized crime figures. Um, <laughs> they just kind of do what they want to do. Mm. And so, yeah, you know, it, quite honestly, all of that, especially what happened to us, put such a bad taste in your mouth. She got out of music publicity and got into just regular marketing. She got out of the business completely. She just kind of hated it and hated you know here's here's this band that she loved and worked really hard on that was a lot of other being told about and they were getting the shaft from a whole bunch of people and really got screwed and it just kind of showed that there's absolutely no not a lot of integrity it's a very selfish business and you know where it all started to change you know all the magazines back then you know you had jerry miller and her whole you know that was kind of the whole circus you know um how she handled her business and you know it was a very it was a very small circle of people and a lot of characters and she just didn't really care for it so she got out mm -hmm. so ron do you think 
looking back, looking looking at it now with the band, right? That are you surprised that you're still playing with the band now? If, no, I'm not because you know the interesting thing is is we wound up becoming, you know, like they say, though that that doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You know, to go through that with a group of guys and you know never within. You know, even even the guys that I don't speak to now that have left the band, like Fidel, we don't speak, but I would take a bullet for him. You know, it just we just had a difference of opinion on, on how much he could participate, and it just wasn't working. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, we, we were always family to each other. And when we were told that we couldn't reform on another label, which basically meant we could never play together again and do it as a business, um everybody just recoiled from that whole experience and just backed out of the music business for a while. And we all got jobs working behind the scenes. You know, mm-hmm. I was, I worked at, a, at, at this company called Groove Tubes that makes, you know, that, that markets tubes to guitar players. And Lauren got a job there. Lauren, who just retired, he was the U.S. sales rep for Blackstar and Korg in the U.S. So I was running the Key Club, a nice venue here in L.A. for 10 years. Yeah. So, you know, we got jobs behind the scenes. Fidel went back to run in his body shop. Um, all the guys went back to work for a studio instrument rental. So we always stayed close and we, we were always a family. You know, the whole thing was none of us, there was never any tension about money because none of us did this for money. All we were trying to do was get to make music together and, and be able to do it day in and day out. Do what we love to do play with the guys we loved for people that we loved doing, doing what we loved. And that was the mission statement from day one. So the big contracts and the power and the promises, we were all just like, whatever, man, we haven't sold any records yet. So I know that there's no money. Number one, number two, this all sounds great. When do we get to go play? You know, just let us know when you want us to play and where to play. And we'll show up and do it. In the meantime, you guys go have your little corporate battles over there because we'll just be over here being a band. <laughs> and so, you know, that's kind of was always the attitude. And so there was never any resentments within the band. I mean, Apache left right after the first record because he couldn't take the bullshit. He, he left immediately. And, you know, then the whole thing imploded and then Earl Slick came in and we tried to resurrect the whole thing. And again, it was just, you know, it's just kind of us against the world. We knew that I wasn't going to go anywhere because we'd already gotten, you know, labeled as being just let this go away and disappear because none, none of them wanted the stench. You know, they, they knew they couldn't climb out of the hole that was dug. And we just went through the motions on the second record, knowing that there was never going to be a career to follow. Mm. Ron, who was? Oh, shit. Give me that. Give me that. <laughs> ah, you're fighting over a toy. Give me that. <laughs> Damn kids. <laughs> Damn kids. I'll be out and feed you dinner shortly. Shut up. <laughs> Ron, who, who, who owns the masters for the records? Well, I'm sure guessing so- that... I'm guessing that Geffen does. And this was the thing. We started talking about, boy, wouldn't it be great if we could remix the record the way we wanted to make the band sound and get a hold of that record with performances and songs and and everything, the solos and everything that people hear on the record, but strip all the bullshit away and the reverbs and do it the way we started to do it. And we started to look into it and... It was kind of deemed by the legal scholars that you don't want to go poking Geffen with a stick because David Geffen is very sort of 
he holds a grudge. And the reality is, is it's starting to get to the point where legally the master should be available, but we don't know what happened with Little Mountain when they went bank, when they went belly up, where the masters went. Probably over to the UMG warehouse that caught fire because they really, really try to bury that. 80% of the greatest albums of all time that came under the control of Universal eventually were all being stored in the place that it burned up. Mm -hmm. And we could go and demand. If you demand your masters and they can't produce them, all bets are off. But you got to hire a lawyer to do that. And at this point... You know, we just didn't have the energy or want to throw money at something like that. Though, it would be very interesting to find out. <laughs> because so. all you guys, you could all do it. You're all well equipped in the studio now, like the know-how to do it. Oh, yeah. I mean, we could easily go in there. And I mean, again, we went in there and it started out exactly as we described. We just put we put amps in, in isolated rooms and threw mics in front of them. And it was all about the performance in the way that Elvis Presley or Paul Rogers or the Rolling Stones did it. Okay, let's do another take. Roll the tape. Let's do another take and roll the tape. Okay, this tape feels great. This is the one we're going to work off. And you just drop a new solo on it or you clean up some vocals and you throw it left and right up in the speakers and you put a tiny bit about a reverb and a little bit of delay on it and boom, it's a record. For us, we did that and then all of a sudden it was... 15, 20 solos. It was like four or five rhythm tracks. It was, okay, we're going to put keyboards on everything. And it'll just be in the background. You won't even notice it, but it'll do this and it'll do that. And these big reverbs, man, you got you to sound powerful to be powerful. I'm like, listen to the first couple of Bad Company records. Listen to all those ACDC records of Bon Scott. There's nothing on this planet musically that's more powerful than that. And there's no keyboards. There's no 52 guitars. There's Malcolm and there's Angus and there's Bon and there's... You close your eyes and you can see the band in a room. And that's what makes great music. And then, boom, you know, that's when they started adding mountains and mountains of overdubs and mountains and mountains of reverbs and effects to the point that we were just like, hey, this is indistinguishable from what it is that we started out doing. And at that point, everybody was like, no, 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 Bob Rock is number one on the charts, man. You can't get into a fight with Bob Rock. And I'm like, I'm sure the fuck will get into a fight with Bob Rock. <laughs> this is not what we discussed. <laughs> you know? So, Ron, tell people where they can get a copy of the book. Well, you can go on Amazon and just search Ron Young, judge this book by its cover, and uh, I'd be eternally grateful. I think it's, you know, it's, it's a story about the music business, but I also think it's a story about redemption and resurrection and i think everybody can relate to it when you know you try to do something in life something that you care about it just doesn't happen and what are you going to do about it and what can happen if it all goes south and then how you can kind of fix it on a bigger cosmic scale Mm. so that's kind of to me what what the whole thing's about and i think it's kind of relatable and the response so far is great and i really appreciate that Mm. well ron when all your dogs started barking my dog came in (laughs) It's like, hey, man, who are you interviewing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, Ron, it's been a pleasure talking to you again. Yeah, same to you. Thanks for the great questions. I really appreciate it. Yeah, all right. Have a good rest of the day. Okay, Richie. Okay. You too. And there you go. There is Richie's marathon chat yet again with uh, vocalist and now we can call him author Ron Young. And as Ron mentioned, if you want to pick up the book, best place to get it right now is, of course, our old friend Amazon. Just look up Judge This Book by its cover or you can look up Ron Young. Either way you do that, it should come up. And if you see a book cover with the uh, tattoo dude on it, then you are probably in the right spot. And of course, big thanks for uh, Ron coming on, taking a shitload of his time, talking to Richie, giving us the whole lowdown. And as usual, being just one awesome dude to talk with. But uh, this one's gone pretty damn long. So I think I'm going to stick a fork in it, call this puppy done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great middle week. And until we talk to you again, as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.